0: So in your early ages comedies, which you think is funnier, the sexism or the racism? <laughs> <laughs> That's the
1: homophobia for me. <laughs> Obviously a joke. None of those things are funny. But
2: what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today.
0: Hello and welcome to the Nerfest podcast. Today we have with us Dan Watkins, Andy Chamber, Ian May, Peter Johnson, and I'm Johnny Hot Stuff Farthing. <laughs> In your dreams. Uh, today we have some recommendations, and we also have a shameful gap. But Dan has realised he is the only one who has not seen Highlander.
1: When you say the only one. <laughs> There can only be one, Andy.
3: I thought I'd seen it, and I thought it was the one where Ben Stiller plays uh, Derek Highlander and he's a male (laughs) model. Uh, (laughs) I assume they're very similar films, and I won't need to watch Highlander.
0: So, let's get on with the show. So, uh, we don't have Hazel with us this week, Andy. Where is she, and why?
3: Uh, Well, she's here. She's in the other room. She's okay. I was going to come up with a silly, jokey thing to say, but it turns out I'm not very funny. The truth is that Hazel has been feeling a bit overwhelmed and stressed with work and just life in lockdown. Mm. So she's just taken a bit of time out away from computer screens, away from as much as she loves the podcast, just away from the pressures of having to plan and perform things and uh, she's just going to take time to look after herself, which is definitely the right thing and I'd suggest to Anyone out there listening, if you ever do feel that things are getting too much, do not be afraid to step back, take some time for yourself, look after yourself. It's the right thing to do.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yes, I do. And if you have murdered her, that was very convincing and heartfelt. So <laughs> well done.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Sally. No one needs to investigate.
1: <laughs> so we've gone from take a break to nobody needs to know in our Hamilton references. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. So the next song.
2: You see, Daniel, with Hazel away, you're going to have to carry the whole Hamilton reference mm. yourself. You're going to have to bring every single one of them all the time.
1: Mm. Or, or drop it, if you like.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, both, both, both. You work. Know,
1: I mean, you could say I'm outnumbered, out, no. outmanned, outgunned, no. and outplanned. But I'm going to need a right hand man, Ian. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I don't know him that well. Ah. <laughs> I'd be there for you, man, I would. <laughs> It's like Hazel's
3: still here with us. I say still here, she is, she's in the other room, but you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) So what have you all been listening to, reading, watching?
4: To try and explain everything to Judith about WandaVision, we've been kind of going through some of the Avengers movies leading up to that. She's not a big fan of that type of movie, but I think it does increase your enjoyment of WandaVision to know who the hell everyone is.
0: Because WandaVision makes perfect sense as long as you know who the characters are. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah obviously we're not going to discuss what's happened in detail because we don't want spoilers for people
0: and we don't know
4: but uh, the plot has thickened shall we say
2: i'm loving division. marvel doing kind of baby's first david lynch show is such an impressive swerve Mm-hmm. I predicted this phase they were going to shift the model of what Marvel movies are, but I wasn't quite expecting that. I think it's been um, a very successful little foray into different genres, I'd say.
0: I'm interested to see if it holds its nerve in the second act. I think we might get a more conventional second half of a season than we've had so far.
2: My theory is it's going to do one more big weird thing. Like I, I can almost feel it coming. There's definitely going to be <laughs> another swerve. Mm-hmm.
3: I would love it to just be big weird things all the way down. I am really enjoying it so far. I'm just, maybe the latest episode felt a little bit like retreading old ground uh, in terms of the, the films.
1: I want it to go back to just being so, so strange. You're going to enjoy the final scenes of the last episode then, Andy, where not only WandaVision, but the entire MCU turns out to be in itself a sitcom being watched by Thanos on his golden throne. He turns, he looks at the camera, he winks. End credits.
2: So the whole MCU is like a box set that a god is watching. Correct. <laughs> right. Cool. I can, I'm all over that.
0: Why does Thanos have a golden toilet? He, he saw
2: Trump had one and just ah, geez, <laughs> wanted to get geez. in on the act. So. And the Queen. It's a pretty select crowd. The royal we. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I assume we've all seen the trailer for um, Godzilla vs. Kong, which has landed as we're recording in the past week. Now, I'm a big fan of monster movies. I'm a big fan of big monsters. And for me, Pacific Rim is the greatest movie ever made about robots punching monsters. This may well be the greatest movie ever made about monkeys punching dinosaurs. Like, that lizard gets proper decked in the first 30 (laughs) seconds of that trailer. And I am here for it. We've gone from being starved of big monster content to being, in, I was like, the golden age of big monster content. There's so much stuff upcoming. The MonsterVerse, which started with Gareth Edwards Godzilla in what year was that? Twenty fourteen. Then went on to Kong Skull Island, which I know I've recommended to you guys recently, which was a very different take on like King Kong. I'm gonna say it. That is my favourite Kong movie, <sighs> including the original, including Peter Jackson, including the uh, like seventies one. It's vivid and pulpy and a bit weird. And I think it went the right direction after the more serious Gareth Edward ones. I like my big monsters in the kind of sillier vein. I think this movie is going to split the difference. I think we're going to get huge big monster nuts action and I'm absolutely here for it. But my recommendation is a Godzilla comic book, which is the only one I've read out of many. Godzilla comics have been made for years. Marvel made them, IDW made them. But this is Godzilla The Half-Century War. It was published by IDW in 2012. It was a five-issue miniseries. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, you've probably got it for free. That's certainly how I read it. It's the story of a Japanese soldier who observed the first Godzilla attack in like the 1950s. He saw that landfall and was like trying to deal with that as like a natural disaster. Who over the next 50 years become part of like the Godzilla tax force and was like dealing with Godzilla as a threat it's like a comic a decade basically it ends in like 2000 something when the earth is in the like real threat from keiju and what's interesting to me is it's a real love letter to like the godzilla franchise this guy has a changing relationship with godzilla sometimes godzilla's the bad guy sometimes he's like the good guy against the bigger foe and sometimes he's like a force of nature you know what i mean something you've just got to like deal with like a tornado or something
4: kaiju are uh, like giant monsters is that right
2: yeah, Kaiju is it's the Japanese word for giant monster which has now been adopted in kind of fandoms. Any big monster is a Kaiju essentially. Um it's made by a Canadian cartoonist called James Stoko. Now Google get James Stoko and you will see his art and you will know right now whether this is something you're interested in or not. He's super detailed, slightly cartoony, like vivid artwork. His depiction of Godzilla, the detail of it is just absolutely beautiful. It's similar to why I like Kong Skull Island. There's a similar kind of effort and work and craft into making these like crazy things look beautiful. And it's definitely my, my recommendation of Godzilla content to fill you in before we get to Godzilla vs. Kong.
0: So there's lots of different Godzilla continuities which gleefully ignore and contradict each other. Mm-hmm. Is this Toho Godzilla, American Godzilla, its own thing?
2: This is its own thing, but based on Toho Godzilla. Like, it doesn't reference, like, the 1998 Roland Emmerich Godzilla. hmm Like, so Toho was the film studio we were originally made Godzilla. They're the Japanese-based. They oversee everything, although other places, usually America, produce it. The monster in the uh, 90s Godzilla has been adopted into Toho continuity. First, the fans hated him and called him Geno Godzilla in name only. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch uh, the 2002, maybe uh, Godzilla Final Wars, which is a Japanese one,
0: 2004, I
2: 2004, think the Godzilla fights Gino and like just batters him <laughs> for like as revenge. But now he's been like adopted by the fandom and called Zilla. It doesn't follow the films directly, but it goes through the crazy period of like the 60s and 70s, um which is called the Showa era, I believe it's called. I'm sure you can Google this and find out. But like mm-hmm. that was when Destroy all monsters being the high point, like multiple monsters fighting each other. The beauty of Godzilla is you can tell any kind of story with them. There's the Godzilla as metaphor stories, like the original '50s one where he's um, a kind of.
4: Hang on, sorry, we can't, we can't let that go without a challenge, John. Would you li- like to come up with an example of a type of story for you to illustrate?
0: Yeah, okay, do it. Go. Um, uh, I would like I would I would like to see a romantic comedy with Godzilla.
2: Right. If you could do a romantic comedy when there's an earthquake going on, you can do a romantic comedy with Godzilla. It's actually if you treat Godzilla Godzilla as done,
0: not it? it? With the, um, what was that film called? With um, oh. Anne Hathaway. in and- The one where she can control Colossal. Colossal. Colossal.
2: That is Godzilla for metaphor is addiction. So if you take the original movie, it's all about the threat of atomic power, the hubris of science, and it really is Godzilla's metaphor. Going further into the show era, Godzilla becomes the protagonist and then it gets silly. So like, you know, Godzilla playing boulder volleyball with a giant lobster. This is the thing that exists. That's in uh, Godzilla versus Ebera Creature of the Deep. Now, uh, Shin Godzilla, a more recent one again, that was Godzilla as metaphor for the nuclear reactor meltdown that happened in Japan. It was like a bureaucracy trying to deal with an evolving problem. It's like Batman. You can do anything you want with Godzilla. And I'm absolutely here for this. Godzilla versus Batman. Godzilla versus Batman would be delicious.
0: <laughs> 70s softcore British sex comedy in the style of Confessions of a Taxi Driver.
2: Okay, with, with some exceptions, <laughs> Godzilla can be used for any kind of story. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're all here for this, right? You're all here for big monsters. Come on.
3: Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I've just as he recommended, I've googled uh, James Stokoe and uh, I really like his artistic style. The first picture I've got is a parade featuring a giant crocodile
2: wearing a hat and looking very happy and I, yeah, yeah, I'm sold. <laughs> Take my money. He's a great artist and a great writer and he knows where to like put weight on each if you know what I mean. So sometimes he'll let the pictures do the storytelling, but he's happy with text and he deserves like praise for this. He's one of us. He's a huge nerd. Uh, but he's just a far more successful one. It sounds great. I think I'm going to check that out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Ian, two questions. One is how many uh, giant radioactive breathing lizards out of 10 would you give the comic? And the second is who is going to win Godzilla or Kong?
2: So for Godzilla The Half-Century War, I'm going to give it nine atomic god monsters out of 10. It's everything I want from this kind of comic. And it, and just you can feel the love on the pages. You know what I mean? It's really um, sticky. It's so detailed and beautiful and deliberate. It's superb. Who's going to win? We all know there's going to be a third threat that they're going to team up to fight. I just actually I really enjoy watching Kong punch Godzilla. There's something so entertaining about that in the trailer. Godzilla seems surprised. <laughs> it's just very entertaining. So um, who's going to win? Cinema. Cinema's going to win.
1: provided they're open when it comes out Mm
0: -hmm. hbo max is going to win
2: yeah however i get hold of it we're in a world where we're all dealing with huge problems that are messing things up that we can't deal with so having this metaphor of giant monsters smashing things around seems extremely resonant and i am definitely here for you know a monkey with an axe
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. i watched skull island i watched godzilla king of the monsters and i watched the original king kong versus godzilla all of which are very different movies and one of which is very good. Um, (laughs) I've been recommending Skull Island a few times in the past and I I kind of disregarded it, but it was a lot of fun. It was real pulpy, entertaining, kind of a throwback to 80s action movies almost. Just good, solid entertainment. I then went on to King of the Monsters. Uh, What the fuck? Jesus Christ. Just (laughs) so dull and convoluted. And the whole film was just so dark. Not dark as in, uh, you know, Godzilla deals with his childhood infant death trauma or something like that. <laughs> you've got Mothra and you've got Ghidorah and you've got Rodan and you've got all these monsters who are absolutely ridiculous. Mothra's a giant fucking moth. Uh, now,
1: now, John, a giant moth would be terrifying they're bad enough when they're normal size (laughs) Mm. don't you love mothra that like a studio has had success with like a giant
2: atomic dinosaur and they're brainstorming right who can fight this giant lizard a lion nah a moth that's the one (laughs) and everyone agreed and it's like hugely successful. There are, there are Mothra movies. They don't really yeah. make it over here, but there are like dozens of Mothra movies.
0: I absolutely love Mothra, but Mothra is an inherently ridiculous giant moth. <laughs> and the film doesn't lean into that ridiculousness at all. The film gives us like a quite dull, muted Mothra that they're almost embarrassed to admit is a giant moth. And also it's implied that he fucked Godzilla or that she fucked Godzilla. How does that work?
2: I think that implication is only there to you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of a casual
4: reading of the movie. Well, that's your 70s porn movie, job.
2: Yeah. That's your 70s body comedy right there.
0: Um, and then I watched the original um, King Kong vs. Godzilla, I believe it is, which is an early 1960s film. The version I saw seemed very similar to the original American Godzilla, where they'd obviously filmed some very cheap bits kind of a guy sat in front of a desk who's american trying to make the narrative clearer for an american audience
2: there is a great history of japanese films and tv shows being adapted for a western audience with Mm. additional like characters and exposition
0: power
4: rangers being the most Mm -hmm. ridiculous example well
2: the cartoon battle of the planets from the 60s and 70s which is a adaptation of gachaman a kind of superhero japanese show into like cut out some like adult bits that perhaps weren't suitable for children, and had a robot that just explained the plot. And as a child, I didn't notice this at all. But literally, <laughs> it would cut away from a fight, and there'd be a robot there going, "And the superheroes proceeded to kill them." <laughs> it just would tell you what happened. Uh, yeah. So com- <sighs> confirm or deny? Not surprised.
4: Did you actually answer the question about which would win in a fight?
2: uh No. I uh, politically, I <laughs> cannot say. <laughs>
0: One is an atomic god who fires radiation and destroys skyscrapers with a single swipe. The other's a a large monkey. With an axe! With an axe, axe, Jan! Come on! There was a very good joke on Twitter, and unfortunately, I don't know who it was, so I can't credit it, but it was like a sample scene from Godzilla vs. King Kong, and it's King Kong's to Godzilla. What, your mum's name's Mothra too?
3: (laughs) Wait, Mothra is Godzilla's mum, and yet you think... In that film, they got
0: it on. How are monsters, you know? It's like if you get after ger- gerbils, to fuck each other, don't they? Even if they're sisters. And, uh, I don't think Godzilla's more intelligent than a gerbil. Uh,
1: s- some, someone recommends something quickly before we talk more about gerbils having sex.
3: <laughs> We're really missing Hazel's calming influence here. <laughs>
1: uh, Dan, what
3: have you got to recommend?
1: Well, uh, I've got something to recommend. And like Ian, it's a new addition to the Nerdfest bookshelf. In fact, it's four new additions to the Nerdfest bookshelf. Our friends at Bloomsbury Raven sent us The Mask Falling by Samantha Shannon, which is the fourth book in her Bone Season series. And I didn't want to start reading from book four, so I went back to book one, started at the beginning. Of course you did. I spent the past couple of months reading the whole thing, and I've really enjoyed it. It's the year 2060... And about 200 years ago, something happened that caused some people to become aware of the ether, which is the spirit world inhabited by ghosts and poltergeists and things like that. These people are called clairvoyants, and they access the ether in various ways, whether it's tarot cards or possession, or in the case of Paige, our hero, being able to dreamwalk, leave her physical body, and inhabit other bodies. Unfortunately, at the same time, 200 years ago, a nasty, horrible government regime called Scion took control of the country and made it their mission to wipe out the unnatural clairvoyance. To go any more into the plot would be a spoiler because something happens about 50 pages into the first book that changes everything. Your complete perception of what this story and what this series of what's going to be seven books is about. I wouldn't call it a twist, but the plot changes in such a way that everything's completely altered by it. It totally got me unexpectedly. I had no idea this is what the book was actually gonna be about. And that was the point that I got hooked into it because I thought, well, if you can make a change that bold so soon into the first book, anything's on the table here. And it really propels everything forward in ways you would never expect from the first couple of chapters. Book two focuses on the criminal underworld of London. Book three takes Paige to Manchester and Edinburgh as she attempts to start a revolution. And the scenes in Edinburgh particularly are brilliantly realised. I know the city quite well, uh, especially after many lockdown walks, and I could picture every single spot that's described in that book. The Mask Falling takes place in Paris. It fills out the world that Samantha Shannon's created and it gives everything a more international scope. From a story point of view, it also drops in a series of huge cliffhangers, which mean that when Book Five comes out, I will be reading it because I need to know what happens next. Andy Circus and the Imaginarian uh, mentioned in the acknowledgments of several of the books. So if that means a screen adaptations on the way, they'd be great people to do it. You could really see how Circus's knowledge of mocap and VFX would work with the spirits and the ghosts and the other supernatural elements of the stories. And if I had to do an elevator pitch, the Bone Season series is The Hunger Games meets Buffy with a touch of Ghostbusters. If you like any or all of those three things, you're probably going to enjoy the books, and you'll almost definitely enjoy a screen adaptation if it comes.
0: Hmm.
3: Sounds good. So from from the premise, I would assume that the tone is is, is kind of a um, young adult fantasy thing. Or is it a bit darker, a bit more grown up?
1: I would say Paige is age about 20 when the story takes place and things are seen from her perspective. She's been part of this criminal underworld for a while, so she's not somebody who's suddenly thrust into the revolutionary activity. She's been operating and using her skills for a while. I imagine as a man in his 30s, I might not be the person who relates the most to her as a character, but she's got fairly universal attributes of perseverance and righteousness that you can get behind whether you're a YA or not. Uh, Certainly, I would imagine it's a Hunger Games, Divergent, Maze Runner kind of target audience in the first instance.
3: Sounds good. I mean, I don't consider myself to be a young adult anymore, but uh, honestly, I enjoy that kind of thing. So I think that could be right up my alley. Mm. I'm a a little surprised at the um, couple of chapters into the first book, um, Gigantic World-Changing Event. It it sounds um, quite a bold thing to do, uh, to set up your world
1: and then to effectively change it all and set it up up again. But clearly that works, does it? I would compare it in a favourable way To the first episode of season two of lost it starts with the character desmond going about his day going on his exercise bike putting some numbers in a keyboard reading a little bit and just at the end of the scene travels around his environment up a really long tube to the bottom of the hatch where all the other characters are looking in from the end of the first series that blew my mind when I first watched it hmm. because suddenly the world of Lost was not just the people from the plane crash anymore. And that was the moment that I got hooked on that show.
0: You're very brave here, giving somebody a positive review whilst comparing it to Lost.
1: <laughs> Lost is really good. You took it out of nerd jail. Let's not go over this again. So
2: how many supernaturally aware criminals in familiar corners of Edinburgh would you give it out of
1: 10, Dan? Ooh. Uh, I would give it eight supernaturally aware criminals in familiar areas of Edinburgh out of 10. Splendid. If you're looking for some lockdown reading, well recommended. Very nice. Andy, what would you like to recommend?
3: Uh, Well, first, let me begin by saying that if Hazel was here with us right now, uh, she would recommend Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is available on Netflix. Uh, it's an entertaining, characterful drama featuring outstanding performances from both Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman in his final role. So check that out if you haven't already. It's great. R. Yeah, it's Bottom. really good.
4: And Chadwick Moseman is a totally different character in that to what he is in uh, Black Panther.
3: Yeah. yeah, he is. He was such such a fantastic actor, and um, honestly, I first discovered him through the Marvel films and really paid more attention to him, sadly, after, after he died. And I've gone back over a, a lot of his, his films and he was phenomenal. And he, I don't think he was ever better than, than he was in, in Mar Rainey's Black Bottom. He, a, a posthumous Oscar could be on
1: his way. And well-deserved it would be as well because he is phenomenal. Too true.
3: Uh, but I'd like to talk about something different, which on the face of it may seem like a pretentious art house recommendation. And it kind of is. But please don't let that put you off. So we've all seen how easily a big-budget action film with CGI and stunts and quips and explosions and magical lassos can be terrible. Uh, what makes a film good is story, characters and emotions, so don't be afraid to try something different because it could easily surprise you. And with that in mind, my recommendation is a film called This Is Not A Burial, It's A Resurrection. This is a drama from the tiny southern African nation of Lesotho, subtitled in English for those of us who don't speak Soto. It's about an 80-year-old widow called Mantoa who has lost a whole family and is now just waiting for a life to end she finds new meaning when her village is threatened with resettlement due to the construction of a dam that will flood the valley and she inspires her neighbors to push back uh, it's a film about resistance and about the human cost of the inevitable onslaught of capitalism and progress uh, it's got a lot of heart but it remains unsentimental and realistic about its subject the lead role is performed wonderfully by Mary Twala who sadly died this past July performance full of dignity and strength, even during the character's weakest and most despairing moments. Uh, it's sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes inspirational. The film was brilliantly shot on location by writer and director Lemahang Jeremiah Mosese. Uh, I really liked his use of colours, long takes, static cameras, deliberate movements, slow zooming in. But my favourite stylistic choice is that the film is presented in the 4-3 aspect ratio, so narrow screen like an old TV. This had two main effects on me. First, there are loads of shots in the film with the sky taking up two-thirds or more of the frame, with the people and the land being squashed into the bottom. Uh, The shape of the frame really emphasises this and gives a sense of the threat of the village being wiped off the face of the earth. Secondly, the narrow image brings a real feeling of closeness to the shots where people group together shoulder to shoulder. And that's important because a particular strength of the film is in the community of people standing together and supporting each other. In a story where the major threat is a village being flooded it might seem obvious to get a high angle wide shot of the village clearly showing what it is that stands to be physically destroyed but the director forgoes this um, instead focusing just on the humanity and you don't see much of the buildings in the village at all. This helps to make the threat less about destroying property more about people and their way of life being extinguished. It's very smart filmmaking. So this is the official submission of Lesotho for the Best International Feature Film category of this year's Academy Awards. And it's the first time ever that the country has made such a submission. I really hope it gets the recognition it deserves because it's fantastic. Mm. So film is, this is not a burial, it's a resurrection, and you can find it on Mubi. This is a pay subscription service, but Mubi offers a free trial period. So if you fancy this film, give it a shot. You don't have to pay to watch it. And if you enjoy it, there's plenty of other good stuff on Mubi as well. I think you'll be glad if you check it out.
1: Yeah. Is Mubi where you heard of it, Andy?
3: It was, yeah. They send me emails and, and notifications all the time about new films, and I keep on adding things to my already very, very long watch list, and it's becoming out of control. But
0: I <laughs> think Mubi offers a seven-day free trial on the website, but if you dig around online, I think I found in the end three months for a pound. A little bit of Google search, you can get quite a long, very cheap or free trial
3: it's it's independent films um and yeah uh, fancy art house things less explosions mm-hmm. more monochromatic melancholia but it's um it is lovely i've watched a, a bunch of surprising things from all around the world uh, new films that are released exclusively on mubi the number of icelandic films i've watched now has increased dramatically I really like it and it's there's a lot of different stuff on there and it's it's worth just having a look at what they've got and I'm sure there'll be something that'll appeal to everyone.
0: Back in the days when we could go out, as part of your subscription, they would pick a, a film a month where you would get a free cinema ticket. And one of their earliest choices was a little film called Mandy. Um <sighs> oh. Oh. I it was John,
2: good films. John, John. <laughs> Let it go. But yeah. This, Quit while this, I'm this,
1: this, this will be a burial, it will not be a
2: resurrection
4: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you were talking about sort of foreign movies and art house stuff Because I have a roundup of some foreign language stuff I've been watching on Netflix Some of which you might find worth trying when you run out of English shows to watch <laughs> I don't mind foreign movies I've watched my fair share of Hong Kong action movies, French art house stuff But it has to be good to justify the extra effort of reading your way through the movie but I found plenty to enjoy with
1: these.
0: Peter is functionally illiterate, so it's quite a difficult. Time.
1: <laughs> it's a struggle, yeah. but um, yeah. Bong Joon Ho called it the the one inch wall, where you've just got to jump over that wall to open yourself up to a whole new world of content, which it sounds like both you and Andy have done this week. Indeed.
2: Or historically embraced terrible dubs, <laughs> which is <laughs> another possibility. <laughs> oh yeah, they're they're so much worse. Agreed.
4: You can actually enjoy the dubs for being terrible in their own right as well, I suppose. The things I was going to recommend are both French and Korean. The first one is a series called Lupin or Lupin. I don't really know how they pronounce it in French, but it's a 10 part French language glossy mystery thriller, which is a bit of like a mix of the BBC shows Sherlock and Hustle. It stars Omar Sy as Hassan Diop, a man who's trying to prove his dad's innocence after he's accused of a jewel theft by his employer 25 years ago. It's very loosely based on the French turn-of-the-century Arsène Lupin novels about a thief-turned-detective, but it bears about as much resemblance to them as Sherlock does to its source. It's slick and well-produced, using fantastic Parisian locations. The first episode staged a dual heist in the Louvre, for example. It's directed by Louis Leterrier. He also directed two Transporter movies and has worked with Luc Besson several times. Omar Sy, I think you were familiar with, weren't you, Dan?
1: Yes, uh, he was fantastic in Untouchable, or Entouchable, or however the French version of that <laughs> would be correctly pronounced. I do have a French brother-in-law, I should know these things. But um, as uh, the carer of a severely mobility-impaired man, he was brilliant in a role that was recast for the American remake as Kevin Hart. Omar Sy mm. went on to be Bishop in Days of Future Past, and I thought he was great for the four seconds that he was on screen. <laughs> um, and he was in Jurassic World as well, bringing something, <laughs> which is more you can say for yeah. most people. In and uh, Transformers the Last Night as well. He hasn't properly broken through in English-speaking cinema yet, but his French stuff that I've seen up to now has been really good, and I'm... Looking forward to getting into Lupin, Lupin. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd well recommend it. We're three episodes in. They've
4: released five of the episodes and the other five are coming out later this year in summer. Um, It's a bit implausible at times, but it is fun. And that's Lupin. The other French show we start watching, which I've only seen one of so far, is called Call My Agent. Mm -hmm. Which is set in a Parisian talent agency after the old boss dies and leaves a power vacuum behind. And the gimmicks that it includes genuine French stars every episode playing the clients. Uh, Apparently one of the later ones is Jean Reno, for example. Um, But it seems quite fun from the first episode, and we enjoyed it. Has anyone else come across that one?
1: Yeah, um, speaking of someone with a French brother-in-law, it's one of their favourite shows. And it's been recommended to the whole family multiple times over its run. I think they're up to season four now. Yeah, there's at least three of them on Netflix. Yeah, and it's always right at the top of my my parents' Netflix watch list. They really okay. enjoy it. Do Do you have a Korean brother in law? I do not, sadly.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, well, yeah.
1: Would you like one? Well, North or South? Central.
0: <laughs> Where did your mail order pride come from, Dan?
1: Scotland. <laughs> I need to think of a good answer here. Um, it was an email. Email. She's on my comp. I don't know. I can't think of a clever response. Somebody think of a clever response and let me say. Um, it. Oh, t- tell John to
3: shut off. Shut <laughs> yeah. <sod> off, John.
4: <laughs> uh. So there've also been two Korean series we've been watching and enjoying. We really enjoyed Sweet Home, which is an apocalyptic horror show based on a webtoon with 1.2 billion views. It's a about 15 people trapped in a tower block as monsters roam the streets outside. If someone's bitten, they turn into a monster, so it's zombie rules. Except these guys have long tentacles coming out of the mouth, a bit like the monsters in The Strain. One of the people get superpowers from partially merging with a monster, another's assumed to be a gangster all the way but actually goes around punishing the evil, another's a female firefighter who's an expert in martial arts. All of them have their own quirks and talents to try and keep everyone alive. This is really good if you watch enough to get into the characters and rhythm of the dialogue. Uh, John, I think you only got about 10 minutes into it, though. I, um, uh, were you perhaps half asleep at the it, time? It
0: wasn't that I turned it off 10 minutes. It's that like I, I I fell asleep 10 minutes enough to put it on at <laughs> about 1am. As usual. <laughs> yeah, and
4: I think it's worth a try. We really, really enjoyed watching, watching. And we did stick with it all the way through, and it was great fun.
2: Uh, the last, I've just worked something out. The reason John likes Mandy so much is he fell asleep during it and dreamt a completely different <laughs> film. This is the only logical explanation. What, every time? Yes, I'm going with that. You
0: mean Nicholas Cage doesn't look directly into camera and say, I love you, John, halfway through? Exactly. <laughs> Damn. Oh, dear. The
4: last one is Uncanny Counter, which is a Korean series, again, based on a webtoon about a team who were people rescued from death to work as superpowered Grim Reapers, making sure evil spirits are banished to the netherworld rather than possessing the living. Motak's a former policeman, Chumai is a maternal character, and Hana can sense evil spirits from miles away. And they're joined by a teenager, So Mun, and it becomes clear that the death of his parents that orphaned him is connected to the former life of Motak as a policeman, and they try to piece together and avenge what happened. It's a lot of likeable characters, and it's good fun. If anything, it's a little like Misfits. They're not as extreme as that. There are 16 episodes, and a second series has been ordered. The most annoying thing is they keep using the same fight music all the time, like Star Trek, (laughs) which does get a bit on your nerves (laughs) by the third time in an episode when they start fighting again, and there's that sort of da-da
2: superpower music. Do you find yourself humming it just randomly? (laughs) like You're chopping onions, and all of a sudden you hum the fight music. Only when I fight people yeah okay (laughs)
4: um all those shows are on netflix so if you don't mind a bit of reading check them out that was Lupin, call my agent sweet home and uncanny counter
2: this uh korean trend of building series around webtoons i hope that takes off in the west i'm looking forward Mm. to jj abram's baby shark (laughs) that could be uh (laughs) quite entertaining did you have a favorite
4: well i really enjoyed sweet home
3: that's the only one we've watched in Totem so far. In Totem. All of them. Yeah, that's with, with Judith sat on Peter's shoulders like a <laughs> <of totem> pole.
0: <laughs> Ew, la de Peter with his in Totems. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> i've had a look at sweet home i didn't get around to actually watching any of it yet but i've read some stuff and watched a trailer and i wasn't 100 percent sure mm-hmm. is, does it take itself kind of seriously or is it a bit silly and fun in that way
4: i mean it's a serious threat but there's plenty of enjoyment to be had you warm to the characters that's the main thing yeah, i might give that a shot then that sounds good uh, but out the two korean ones uncanny counter probably is the more humorous there's a lot of nice little humorous touches in that as well as you know the bad guys getting beaten up regularly
0: sounds entertaining so at what point did we all get over our subtitle phobia if we ever had one because i th- i always grew up watching john Wu films and stuff like that and i remember always trying to seek out the subtitle version from very very early on but likewise with a lot of the old kung fu movies the bad dubbing is kind of an inherent part of the charm
2: there's actually a bit of the dub of um, Hard Boiled that I really, really enjoy. And it's just not the same in <laughs> in the kind of uh, original text, which is uh, the police chief is asking about a, a cop named Tequila. And he goes, what is your office called? Vodka? And he goes, ha ha, no, Tequila. And it's just <laughs> insanely amusing.
1: <laughs> My granddad growing up, he always needed the subtitles on. And so I was quite used to watching TV and watching films with Mm -hmm. the subtitles anyway. So when there was a film that specifically needed them, it didn't really have any barrier in my mind, if that makes sense.
0: Particularly late at night, and a lot of the American stuff that's quite thickly accented and things like that, I find I just have the subtitles on anyway, because I tend to have it on quite quietly if it's late on an evening and stuff like that.
3: I don't recall a time when I specifically had a problem with subtitles. I imagine when I was much younger, um, they would have put me off. But uh, off the top of my head, the earliest film I can remember really, really loving uh, that had subtitles was probably Battle Royal. Mm. Or is it Royale? Battle mm-hmm. Royal.
2: Royale with cheese.
1: I think it's I think it's Royale in the film, but Royal if it's a wrestling match. Mm-hmm. Sounds good.
2: I remember renting the City of Lost Children from my local video shop and being mortified, it was a dub, but being impressed that at one point there is like a song that had been translated and it still rhymed and made sense in English, which is a phenomenal yeah. feat. Like that's you know the the writer and actors of that did an amazing job.
0: Didn't the Magic Roundabout that was dubbed in England, but the guy that dubbed it didn't speak French, so he just watched the episodes with the sound off and made up a story that fitted the visuals. Yeah, Eric Thompson,
4: mm-hmm. Emma Thompson's dad i don't know if that's because they figured the stories wouldn't translate to an audience or whether it was just they didn't care <laughs> i don't know
2: <laughs> how different could they be though <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean the the dog finds something mm. uh-huh.
0: and then there was the magic roundabout movie with robbie williams as um zebedee was he zebedee or no, as, as Dougal the dog Am I the only person that remembers this? What
4: really? I think I've erased that from my brain. I do remember that, and there was another one, I... Dougal and the Blue Cat, which was a previous yeah, movie. Yeah,
0: Dougal and the Blue Cat was a very, it was an old one. It was around the time of the original series. Yeah. But then they tried The to Robbie Williams her.
1: was a CG remake, yeah. wasn't it? And I believe, I believe they redid the voices again for the American version of that one. And I'm fairly confident that John Stewart played Dougal.
0: bizarre.
1: Dougal and the Blue Cat, I remember.
0: Yeah, I do know that in all the American Take That videos, John Stewart replaces Robbie Williams. Have <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen um, the one where they're rubbing jilly over each other? Jon Stewart is a, a very different very different thing.
1: Yeah. As, as long as we don't have to watch his version of Rock DJ's video. Oh,
0: God. I don't know what's more disturbing, the, the video or the sound, because I hate that song. So, uh,
1: yeah, which Robbie Williams solo album are you recommending this week, John?
0: The sound of silence um okay i've got a couple of um, I've got a couple of short recommendations rather than one big one, so I'll blast through them um the first one is there is a film called Jiu-Jitsu, um which I haven't actually seen yet uh, I was planning on what
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, to uh, I,
0: I, I, I was planning on watching it this morning but um but you fell asleep and, and imagined it. <laughs> this is like the dog ate my homework equivalent of doing recommendations let me pause this. He uses his kung fu skills against an alien threat
1: 10 out of 10 Ten out
0: of 10 john you've dreamt it i am happy to give this a 10 out of 10 <laughs> based entirely on the trailer you've just without, you've dreamt without it. watching it doesn't film. exist <laughs> i think it's tony jar and nicholas cage versus a guy in a low-rent predator knockoff costume how can this cannot be the greatest <laughs> nicholas cage film of all time I get the feeling actually it's one of those. um It's a, when I looked at the trailer, it says and Nicholas Cage, and I think we might get the entirety of Nicholas Cage's performance in the trailer, so we'll see. But Cage is an elderly kung fu master fighting an alien. Ten out of ten. Um Two things that I have seen. I'm going to go for a TV series which has been on Netflix a while, but which I've only just caught up with, and is possibly one of the worst things I've ever seen, but also maddeningly addictive. Um, I know Hazel has seen it, so I don't know, Andy may have done. It is a Designated Survivor.
3: Oh, I've seen half an episode. Mm. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, um, Kiefer Sutherland is the housing secretary in an American political cabinet. The term Designated Survivor comes from the fact that when all the politicians are gathered together for like the State of the Union Address, Each party has a designated survivor who is put in a bomb room elsewhere so that if the worst case scenario happens, there is somebody to take over. And it's a largely ceremonial role. Kiefer Sutherland has been fired that morning or been asked to attend his resignation, but actually hasn't handed it in. And thus as the spare cog in the wheel is the designated survivor. It starts with him turning on the TV seeing that the Capitol building has exploded, which is probably less out there than it was a couple of weeks ago. He then opens the door to the bomb-proof room and sees the massive explosion and the Capitol building in flames. So clearly clearly (laughs) it was a silent explosion. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he is sworn in as president. Natasha McElhoney is his wife. And obviously he has to come to terms with being president. All of Congress is dead. All of the Senate is dead. Basically, he has to... They might
4: get something
1: done.
0: Yeah, unfortunately not. No. And he has to rebuild the government and try and unite the country and act as president. There's also at the same time the mystery conspiracy theory as to who blew up the Capitol, which it turns out is a conspiracy that goes to the heart of the White House. Because one other congressman survived who obviously he decides to make his vice president, but may not be all that he seems. Maggie Q is an FBI investigator who is going around trying to discover whether this fake Middle Eastern country that they created was behind the bomb or whether it was closer to home. And every week it gets more and more (laughs) ridiculous. Like it just throws out in one episode for no reason that the president's son might not be his son, but the result of his wife shagging somebody who's now in prison. It's just nonsense. It's like it's like the West Wing on stupid pills. <laughs> so 10 out of 10? I must admit, I was expecting more
4: like uh, sort of diehard for some reason from the title.
0: You've got Keith O'Sullivan as a lead, playing kind of the anti-Jack Bauer, this very, very buttoned up by the books president, but he clearly wants to play it as Jack Bauer. So he's kind of playing it half as this kind of quite dour character, but half as this weird action hero trapped in a world where he's signing bits of paper and not actually being in action here, but getting involved in this conspiracy (laughs) theory. He's he's going and interviewing people in prison and looking at wiretaps and helping to hack computers. It's ridiculous. (laughs) But boring. Do you
4: think that's what it's like when Arnie moved into government?
0: It pretty much is like that, yes. They rebuild the Capitol building in a year at a cost of seven billion dollars via a montage where apparently the entire Capitol building is rebuilt in one year using two cranes. <laughs> I watched eight episodes in a row. Uh, so <laughs>
2: why <laughs> remind? I, I'd I'd like to remind you this was your recommendation. Mm, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> one, one of the, one of the other
0: characters in it, uh, the uh, who ends up as the press secretary, is Carl Penn
1: mm-hmm. House,
0: but he actually served. Bizarrely enough, after he did the Harold and Kumar films in the Obama White House.
1: Yes, that's why he left House, I think, wasn't it?
0: Yep. He is credited both as a star and as a political consultant in an attempt to give this thing some kind of realism. It's just so ludicrous. But my favorite bit is I don't know if people know the idea of like a back end pickup for network TV shows in America. You'll get picked up for half a season, and then if it's going well, you'll get like the back end order. Yeah. And it's normally 13 episodes and another nine and i have never seen a tv series so clearly aware that it was going to be cancelled wrapping up the story in episode 13 (laughs) and then suddenly getting picked up and having to desperately string this thing out for another nine episodes after Uh... killing like the one of the main characters who is the head of the conspiracy like what what do we do now yeah it's ludicrous it's ridiculous but on a saturday night when you've had a glass of wine or a beer and you just want to switch your brain off and let something flow over you. It's 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 fun. As I say, I, I watched eight episodes in a row and um, I'm on to season two and it's a real guilty pleasure. I'm hooked and I'm ashamed to be hooked.
2: Uh, you watched eight episodes in a row and now you're vivid Nicolas Cage hallucinations <laughs> are like merging into a vivid White House conspiracy hallucination.
1: <laughs> Write it down, you'll make a million. So my question about Designated Survivor is, uh, firstly, is it more or less realistic than 24 secondly is it more or less realistic than real american politics of the last four years
0: i would say it is less realistic than 24 but more realistic than real american politics <laughs> 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 um so that's it yeah and one very briefly thing that i would actually like to recommend is a film called the rental which uh i saw a few months ago and i, m- I may have mentioned to people at the time but it's just popped up um He got a cinema release to make, but it's just popped up as an Amazon original on Amazon Prime this week, so it's more widely available. And it's a nice little taut little thriller horror movie um, starring Alison Brie and a guy whose name I forget.
4: Uh, Isn't it Dan Stevens? Dan
0: Stevens, I think, is best known for Downton Abbey. And Legion. And it is written and directed by Dave Franco, the lesser Franco, and Mr. Alison Brie. Which I presume is how he he got her in the film um it's a very, very low budget. it's um two couples, so an i t tech startup owner and his wife, who go on a weekend retreat with his wife his brother and his brother's girlfriend, who is also his co founder of this tech company, so there's some interrelations there, and they're making eyes at each other, and they you know they may not be entirely all faithful to each other um at some point, they are in a shower and they see that there is a webcam in the shower and they are being filmed. Much recriminations ensue and then it's un- it's not a spoiler to say that they probably don't all make it out alive. It's nicely done. It's like an old school horror movie, but the, the characters are all nicely horrible, so you don't hate seeing them meet- they come up and so much. Some nice little swerves and a nice little ending. and It's really, really well shot. Uh, well acted, keeps you on your toes. I was never bored. It's only about 90 minutes long. And again, it's a perfect, maybe a Saturday night film. I I wouldn't have recommended going to see it in the cinema.
2: How many uh, lesser francos out of 10 would I you would give, give
0: it? I would give it seven lesser francos out of 10. If you just want a nice Saturday evening thriller, it's a very good example of that. So, uh, Daniel. Yes. I understand that you have a shameful gap.
1: I do. I have a confession to make: that up until very recently, I had never seen Highlander.
3: Shame, oh, shame. Shame. shame, Was it good? I've
1: never seen it. Shame, I- oh, shame, shame. Uh, to sum it up in the briefest way I can: fun film. Shame about the lead actor. Ooh. Uh. Um yeah, I enjoyed the film as a whole. I liked the mythos of it. I thought the characters were really cool. It had a great villain. I loved the way that different immortal characters approached immortality in different ways. Some of them were really cautious, some of them just lived life to the full. I saw the influence of it. Uh characters like Henry Cavill's Geralt of Rivia in The Witcher seems very drawn from the kind of magical loner type that you see in Highlander. The first five minutes completely hooked me in. First, you get the cool mythical text explaining the world. It was
4: wrestling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then you get Queen playing, and then you cut to a full arena and the fabulous Freebirds come out for a six-man tag match. And I'm like, this is all my favourite things in one film. (laughs) And then you cut to the medieval period for a battle with castles in it, and I was completely sold. And then he started talking, and not so much the French-Scottish, because in the 16th century, as one of John's friends on Facebook pointed out, Mary Queen of Scots grew up in France and would have had a French accent, not a Scottish one, but... There was more than a touch of the Tommy Wiseaus about him, I felt.
0: I, I love the little bit where they try and explain away his accent, where they go, like, where are you from? And he just goes, like, lots of different places.
1: Yeah, the accent thing didn't bother me because if you're going to have somebody with a French Scottish accent and you're going to have somebody with a Scottish accent be Egyptian slash Spanish. No accents matter, and it's absolutely <laughs> fine. It was just more his general performance. I couldn't, mm. I couldn't buy into him. As much as I bought into the film, I did struggle with him. You know he's practically blind. I did not. He can see very little without his glasses
4: on. Uh, to the extent that, according to Wikipedia, there's, they kept doing shots where he'd ride over the hill on a horse and he'd forget to take his glasses off and he'd have to go back and do it again when he got close. Um, but this the sort of meaningful stare into the distance stuff is all actually can't see a thing. Right. I did not know that.
2: Wow. Imagine casting yourself in a sword fighting movie when you can't. That, that is crazy. <laughs> <amazing>. yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. And they, they didn't realise how little French he could speak when, when they cast him as well.
0: How little English he could speak. Uh, yes. They didn't realise how little <laughs> English
4: he could speak. Um, they'd seen him in Greystoke and they thought well, he looked great. And perhaps what they took as sort of acting was actually just mm-hmm. incomprehension to some extent. And yeah, you had to have a voice coach for like three or four hours a day and all sorts of things. So did Sean Connery, mind.
0: Mm. Yeah, the, the, I think I have mentioned to the podcast where Sean Connery had an accent coach and they said to him, what sort of Egyptian prince do you want to be? And he said, a Scottish one.
1: And, <laughs> I, Connery was really fun in it, mm. I thought. It seemed like he was having a good time, especially in, there's a really good training montage in the film. And there's a shot of them just running joyously along a beach. Yeah. And it's the happiest I think I've ever seen Sean Connery.
0: Mm. <laughs> Apparently he, he he took the part for the money and he was very well paid. I think he got paid like a million dollars for 10 days work or something. Uh, and it was a money role. But then when he got over there, he kind of really got on with the director and um, really, really enjoyed himself. Mm.
4: Because the, the director, it's not his first film. I think he'd done Razorback yeah. before this one, Russell Mackay. But he was, at that point, he was best known for doing all the Duran Duran videos. Mm-hmm. That was his sort of claim to fame.
0: There's a great story, and you can see it a little bit if you watch the film. Of uh, I think Sean Connery had to finish like at five o'clock in the evening, and if it went one minute over, he got paid an extra $100,000 or something. So on the last day, they were really, really rehired, and he was like going, oh, I'm getting somebody here. So the director, at about half past four, just got him to stand in front of like a fairly plain background, like with a tree. And Ken said to me, okay, look this way, look that way. Laugh, smile, <laughs> frown, rap <laughs> about women's family. He was like, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and just, there's lots of cutaways.
4: <laughs> and another weird story about it is it starts with a Sean Connery voiceover and it has a, quite a weird echo on it. And apparently that's because they recorded it in his bathroom at his house in the South of France. <laughs>
2: I love Highlander. I grew up with it. Yeah. It appeals to like the fantasy nerd in me greatly in that it's quite a mysterious plot for some reason that's never quite explained. You become immortal, like you experience an event that could kill you and it doesn't, and then you are cursed with this immortality, and you're forced into a game you don't understand. You you are drawn to other immortals and you face each other and will kill each other, and ultimately you're gonna win something. It's just a very compelling mystery, and it allows this kind of flashbacks to different eras. As Dan says, different people approach their immortality in different ways. And it's really compelling. The moment you start explaining it, as in the sequels, <laughs> there are, yeah. it falls apart completely. But as it stands, mm. it's superb. And yeah. the reboot is apparently in heavy development. Right. Um, mm. Directed by uh, Chad Stalaski, who's one of the John Wick guys, mm-hmm. who in a former life was, um, he was actually Brandon Lee's stunt double on The Crow. He's like uh, one of these Hollywood mm-hmm. stunt men of yore. It's mm-hmm. interesting you mentioned The Witcher, because mm-hmm. like the sword fights in The Witcher, I think are extremely well done, and they're very stylized, but they're taken from kind of European sword fighting methods as opposed to like stage fighting methods. And I don't think we've seen the big martial arts film that does the kind of proper broadsword, rapier, you know, like the, the kind of medieval babatsu. I believe it's called like stick fighting. I don't believe we've seen one that's <laughs> really pushed that, and mm-hmm. given kind of modern production values. And keeping it, cutting down to this like bare-bones premise, I think there's real potential in that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the mystery, because that's one of the things I really liked about it. I knew that there could only be one, and I knew that you got these immortal people, but I liked that they didn't try and explain it too much. But it sounds like there were more Highlanders. Yes, and- I
0: highly recommend the um, the cinematic original cut of Highlander 2, if you want the explanation.
2: Uh, what if I don't then don't watch it at all (laughs) stay away I recommend you don't watch it if all your other films burn down maybe but (laughs) other than that stay (laughs) away
0: don't watch the producers cut where they try to roll back and make a more sensible sequel I mean are you going to watch this film
1: Highlander 2 yes well based on what Ian's just said not likely I mean can can (laughs) I just ask
0: at at any point in the film Highlander was there an implication that they were actually all aliens from the planet Zeist no. No, okay. It's funny that, mm. isn't it?
4: Mm. It's like they forgot.
0: Yeah. And was there any indication in the first film that has an alien from the planet Zeist, Connor McCloud would be perfectly placed to create a shield over the Earth to stop the depletion in the ozone layer, killing everybody?
1: It's sort of hard to tell from some of his lines, but I don't think so. <laughs> was it at
0: any point in Highlander indicated that after Sean Connery died, it be quite easy to bring him back just by saying his name?
1: Am I to assume that... One or all of these things happen in the. <laughs> I mean, sequels. I would
0: say this is a film before film beloved, but all of these things happen in Highlander two.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and you're recommending that Dan watches
0: Highlander two. It's surprisingly difficult to get the um, the cinema version because what happened was, Good. was no. Uh, there's a reason for that. <sighs> yeah, the, a few years later, they went back and did like a a producer's cut where they kind of rolled back on them all being aliens and tried to make a little bit more sense out of it with some voiceover and stuff. And that's the version that is easier to find now. Um, But to find the actual (laughs) original awful cinema version, I had to buy a DVD.
2: It's surprisingly difficult to get all the same the original mm. cut in the same way. It's surprisingly difficult to get old of kids toys with lead paint on them. <laughs> There's a very very good reason for that.
4: I'm just surprised they had so many um, sequels and follow ups because they had like two extra movies. They had they got to five movies. Yeah. Oh God! Right. Okay. And then there was. Several seasons of the Honda TV show. There was the Raven, which mm-hmm. was a spin-off as well, TV show. And this was from a movie that cost sixteen million to make and only
0: brought in twelve million on its box office. So it wasn't a hit. It was massive on VHS, sir.
2: We we can't go much further without mentioning the amazing soundtrack to that mm. film i mean oh, yeah. queen have done like two remarkable movie soundtracks that aren't like regular soundtracks you know they're songs basically they've just produced the flash garden soundtrack is phenomenal yep. and the
1: highlander soundtrack is mm. phenomenal i did write in my notes must get queen highlander soundtrack it's a kind of magic mm. is the sort of equivalent mm. to queen album.
0: yeah that's the problem with highlander too as well when like you've got all the queen soundtrack in highlander And then the opening credits of Highlander come up and it says, music by Stuart Copeland of Sting. And you're like, no.
4: Stuart Copeland of Sting, did you just say? Yeah, it's like The Handmaid's Tale.
0: (laughs) Of of The Police, sorry, yes, but of The Sting. really good. (laughs) Uh,
4: Yeah, Who Wants to Live Forever is a beautiful song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Despite having Brian May sing it at the start.
0: Mm-hmm. I was kicking off when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, Like, where they had the big thing in Bohemian Rhapsody about Freddie Mercury discovering he has AIDS and writing, who wants to live forever to cover it? You're like, no, it was written by Brian May for the Highlander soundtrack two years before Freddie Mercury had any inkling that he was ill.
2: (laughs) Yep. About a French-Scottish clansman mourning over the ageing of his wife. Mm -hmm.
1: I will make a point just about historical accuracy because it is something I always look for in my films. Um, good good bit of location work in Scotland. Eileen Donan Castle, which turns up in quite a lot of films, was used really well. But there was one really glaring error. Uh, as was it the
0: time-travelling Immortal Swordsman? It was not the time-travelling
1: Immortal Swordsman. Andy will uh, hopefully back me up on this. But... Uh, The opening scenes take place at Madison Square Garden. Now, the Fabulous Freebirds did have a very brief run in that New York territory in 1984 before they were scared (laughs) off by Andre the Giant, but they made their name in 86, around that time feuding with the Von Erich family in Dallas for the world-class championship wrestling company based in Texas. They would have been nowhere near Madison Square Garden in the year that the Highlander film was released, and to pretend anything otherwise is unforgivable, quite frankly, Andy. (laughs)
3: It's, it's quite right, and to be honest, I'm incensed, I'm enraged, and uh, just based on that, not the fact that you've all described the film as being utterly terrible, I refuse to watch it. These were actually loving criticisms, though, were they not? Yeah. There,
2: there is one of the small historical inaccuracy, which is during one of the um, Scottish Klansman battle scenes, you can clearly see a car driving in the background. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Can you? laughs>
1: oh. That glaring inaccuracy aside, I had a huge amount of fun watching it. Though I didn't buy into the lead actor, the people around him that popped up were really good. Hugh Quashie turns up as another immortal and I thought he was really fun. Uh, Clancy Brown as the Kurgan uh, was great. Um. He was really hamming it up and he was properly villainous. Uh, Andy making the appropriate hand gesture to the Kurgan there.
2: (laughs) Calling the Kurgan a wanker? Don't do that!
1: (laughs) I'm to assume that the three of you, Peter, John and Ian, who've seen it, you all seem to have a lot of affection for it.
0: Oh, I love it. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And it still holds up. Today, When I watched it um, last year and I still really, really enjoyed it.
2: So, Dan, how many samurai swords which couldn't possibly exist out of 10 would you give it?
1: It is a seven samurai swords that couldn't possibly exist out of 10. I would watch it again quite happily, but I, by the sounds of it, I don't think I'll be seeking out the sequel. And would you recommend Andy to watch it? Yes, I would. I think he'd enjoy Sean Connery. I think he would enjoy the flashing between different time periods. And I think he'd buy into, like Ian says, the mystery and the fantasy of it all. Uh, He might not love it, but he will definitely like it.
0: Well, I might, but... At what point in Highlander is it suggested that Sean Connery, (laughs) an Egyptian (laughs) prince who died in the 16th century would have a passport that would allow him to travel on a jet from Scotland to America with no hassle whatsoever and go as far as to join the Mile High Club with the ladies sat in the seat next to him.
1: Is this another thing from Highlander 2? Yes. Oh, no.
0: Is a montage of him going into an Edinburgh kilt shop and uh, getting fitted out in a foot-full kilt outfit. It's great.
4: All this stuff about Highlander 2 just proves there should have been only one.
0: That's
1: the that's the cap.
0: Uh, So that's been another frankly mediocre episode of the podcast. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it. Back in two weeks for the the same old shit. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Don't care really. Give us a like. all user metrics in it. Buy a mattress in a box. That's what we want. We just want enough people to listen that We can sell a fucking mattress in the box at the start of the show. That's
1: all we want. So we we, we apologise for the the conduct of John in the last 30 seconds. Uh, He has taken the uh, disrespecting of Highlander 2 quite to heart.
4: (laughs) This episode you've been listening to, a man who's been badly dubbed for the
1: entirety of the programme. A man who'd love to see clairvoyance versus Highlanders.
2: A man betting heavily on the monkey.
1: A man who feels no shame at
3: having never seen Highlander.
0: The man who wouldn't be picked as a designated survivor even in his own household.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening,
4: everyone. (laughs) Bye. Bye.
2: So, Andy, this is not a funeral, it's a resurrection. Is that what it was going Yes. Yes. Uh, this is not a burial, it's a resurrection. It sounds great. It legitimately does. I'm definitely intrigued by it and what you said. But don't you think it would have been better that instead of the village being threatened by a flood, it was threatened by Godzilla? It would... Oh, yes. Mm. Yes,
3: definitely, yes. Just Godzilla, though, it would have been ridiculous and over the top if there'd also been a giant monkey.
0: Don't you think, Dan, watching Highlander... Would it have been better if the prize was not mortality, but your own pet Godzilla?
1: I can't say the thought came to me at the time, but thinking about it now, I can't disagree. Mm -hmm. But it should have been. John,
3: don't you think that Designated Survivor would have been better if (laughs) instead of exploding, the Capitol building had been crushed by a giant moth?
0: (laughs) I think it would have been better if the Designated Survivor was Godzilla, And you have to see Godzilla mastering the intricacies of American politics. Uh,
1: Just like Ian said, he's so versatile. Yeah, like any story, any single story.